Hey, welcome to the Virtually Speaking Podcast. You're listening to part two of a two-part series called Kubernetes in Cloud with Kelsey Hightower. If you haven't listened to part one, go back to vspeakingpodcast.com. But if you did listen, you might remember we ended the conversation with a discussion around the Kubernetes API and what it might look like five years from now. Yeah, man, I, when Kubernetes hit like year two, I kind of knew it was going to be a 20-year technology. Hmm. Because you got to be in the game for 20 years to make that statement true. So we're like almost halfway there. And so 20 years is like when you get to year 15, that's when everyone feels safe that it's going to be around for a long time. Then it kind of turns out they'll probably be wrong, that that's actually when the competitor will show up. And there will be a few of them, and we won't pay attention because they won't be the de facto standard. There will be just these one-offs that won't be that interesting, immature, not the same performance, but that thing will collapse the layers. And you ask, when someone collapses the layers, what will remain? I don't think we're ever going back to a world where we don't have a declarative API. I think that is going to be permanent. So it's like the early days of the web, HTTP was used to serve HTML. Yeah. And then eventually people found other use cases like, well, what if I don't have a web page, but I still want to use the HTTP transportation layer? So we keep HTTP, we keep headers, and we get rid of the HTML, and then we put other payloads in there, and we start to collapse some of these things down, and now we have RESTful APIs. I think something similar is going to happen is that whatever new shows up, and maybe the next two iterations, they will probably leverage a control plane API schema-like thing that will either be Kubernetes API server or be something very similar. Because I think now we understand that when you're building these complex systems that have to interact with each other, you probably just want the user to declare something and let the system itself resolve to that known state. I don't think we're ever going back from that. No, I I agree. I think um, that having that as the underlay that everyone sort of non-verbally agreed upon and you know you people vote with the tooling that they build and the, the things that they consume so you can see very clearly if you look at the cncf landscape as much as people like to make fun of it there's a lot of innovation going on around this area in particular um but do you feel like maybe there is a point where the tooling and everything built around Kubernetes and that ecosystem will become commoditized. And maybe the ne- maybe it's happening now. Maybe the next thing is, you know, people are more concerned about software supply chain, securing software supply chain and that kind of thing. And moving on from the, okay, we've solved the infrastructure problem. What's next? How do we make this secure end to end? How do we verify what we're running? That kind of thing. Yeah, we're actually in this really interesting era. We went from, you know, Think about pre-open source, right? You got commercial products that say, you pay this license fee, you get to use computers in this way. And then at some point that gets out of reach for the new group of people that want to come in. And I'm pretty sure there's so much more nuance in between that and the birth of open source. Open source comes out and kind of replicates all of those other systems. And so tends to be back then that open source was kind of trailing a little bit of what the industry standards were, and we wanted an open version of it. And now we move to a phase where open source is defining the standards going forward. But we did it for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 plus years where you have to download the software, you have to run it yourself. If you don't like what you see, you can customize it and do whatever you want so you can fork off, right? That has been the default behavior. And then we get to this interesting space with like managed services where that complexity of choice, those number of plugins, config options, All that just becomes eventually a complexity of choice. And also, you need a certain level of skill to run some of this stuff in production, which you may or may not have. Even if the software is free, the expertise is not. 
And so you combine those things, we get, some people say that's the birth of the cloud, is combining those two things and making it into service. But when you look at the evolution to your point around um, getting these kind of commoditization of certain layers, look what happened to SSL, right? I remember you used to have to pay like $400 to get an SSL certificate. And you go through this long ass song and dance, like what are y'all oh. doing for seven days? Dude? Yeah. Like I own a domain, just generate Here comes SSL certificate, sign it. Yeah, is that? and then you get... Not only an open source project, you get a whole public good service. You get this thing that is now integral to Cloudflare, Google Cloud, Amazon. All of these companies are now not just using an open source tool or just a library. They're using a public good open service. And so that's what happens when something gets truly commoditized. So much so that we can do it for free and no one wants to compete in that space anymore because it doesn't make any sense. I think a lot of infrastructure will trend the way of sidewalks and streetlights. Some things will be so critical, they just need to be there. And most companies, if they're smart, it doesn't make sense to have a proprietary version of something you need to be interoperable. Mm. So I think what we're gonna do is some of these things like Kubernetes, yeah, I think they're starting to kind of reach that. But one thing that I've seen most recently, and I remember when the Google Cloud team did it, they layered the Prometheus protocol right on top of our proprietary metrics and monitoring service. And so now you just have what seems like a global Prometheus instance, and you can send all the data you want to it. And so what that means now is if you have the open source library imported, you can point it at the Prometheus instance running your laptop, or you can point it at this cloud endpoint. That is amazing that we're shifting from experimenting getting a lot of complexity, a lot of ideas out there. The community saying, you know what? We think we found something that works. Let's ratify as a standard. And then we did such a good job of separating the implementation from the spec for some of these things that we can layer on these APIs to other systems. And I think that trend will probably continue. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've seen Prometheus also used in that way to where, okay, we've got this existing performance service and we need to make this consumable at a highly performant rate. And rather than rebuild everything, let's... Let's export it that way. That is a that is a great example of a tool that is definitely taking uh, telemetry by storm. What happened to uh, RFC specs back in the day? Because you were talking about like standards and things becoming standards, and nowadays we've got you know the SIGs around Kubernetes that help define standards for CSI and those kinds of things. How did we end up from like RFCs to doing stuff on GitHub? And do you think there was like a change in how the community chose to operate, or why do you think there was a shift there? I think RFCs are really good where you have things like protocols, you know what I mean? Especially if you're trying to design something for the industry. And think at the time of the initial set of RFCs, there were very few companies with experience on designing software. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, you have this group of people who understand like how to design these protocols, how to get them out there. Because think about it, there was not as many great foundational frameworks in which to implement these things. So you probably want to get it right before someone goes off and writes a bunch of C code mm. or C++ to implement this thing. But these days, import Golang, <laughs> import HTTPS, I can implement most of these protocols in a few days just by looking at a spec. Yeah. And also, look how good these frameworks are. You have things like a RAF library that allows you to implement a distributed system with replication with a library. So you can build a database like Console or etcd or even CockroachDB because you have this huge starting point. So I think now what people are starting to do is saying, we have this culture now of experimentation. Thank you, GitHub. Because now, since this stuff is way more accessible, there are more people in the world that have grown up 
with the ability to use things like Linux, not AIX or Solaris. So, so many people now have these skills. We have all of these languages. And I think one thing we don't talk about enough in open source is that we now have all these working examples that you can browse and see how they're implemented, fork it and start anew, that you get all this creativity globally, mm. right? Like the whole world has advanced over the last 20 or 30 years in terms of access to technology and knowledge. So now we have the whole world trying things. Mm. And some of those things are bound to work. And when they work, they didn't form a committee because they don't know people that work at all these other companies in which to form a committee and do an official RFC. We don't have permissions anymore. The gates have been lowered, mm. right? So now you can just throw your stuff on GitHub. You wake up in the morning. Oh my God, I have like seven stars. I don't even know these people <laughs> yeah. that started my GitHub repository. And the next obvious thing that you do is go raise a round of funding because now you need to build a whole company around the bash script you just put on GitHub. <laughs> but, but what that speaks to is that the community can now vote on what they find useful. And the interaction is now so tight that a lot of people are doing these things out of passion. And so the speed at which they can move, right? There's no meetings, there's no, no sprint planning. They're just like, oh, it works, you like it, you get to use it. And so what happens is if enough people start to use it, it becomes a de facto standard. And what's really nice about this approach, all the bugs that get fixed along the way, all the features that get added, it gets battle tested for two or three years. And then people step back and say, yo, whoa, whoa, whoa. This should probably be standardized now. Let's get a formal spec in place. Maybe if it makes sense, let's go to Linux Foundation to make sure that the IP and, you know, that we don't have just one maintainer working on this thing because we're all going to start using it now. That might be the right way to implement a lot of these systems versus things like, you know, not knocking on it. Yeah. But things like OWAF, you can tell that was an RFC first before <laughs> it was used in practice. Well, I mean, you think back to some of the early RFCs for Ethernet and stuff. There were seven companies who were going to make, you know, a, a NIC. And, you know, they all were large, you know, kind of classic large companies who could all afford to fly someone and throw them in a conference room for three days and then come back three months later and they could move at that speed. Um, versus this, as you talk about this distributed model of people coming together on GitHub. Now, I did want to ask one kind of question here as we round this out about decentralized versus centralized systems. And I feel like GitHub is a great example of Git being a decentralized platform um, that then someone decided to build a single centralized repo of because, you know, running it decentralized was a pain in the butt. And Microsoft paid, you know, seven and a half billion, I think, for it in that case. But where do you see the value of decentralized architecture? Where do you see the challenges where people maybe are going for decentralized too quickly? Um, and where do you see kind of the ebb and flow within the industry? Humans rely on each other, right? We're individual actors. We can make our own decisions but we are connected in some ways. And so then we need protocols to help govern our actions like laws. You can't kill that person. Don't do that. That's not yours. Don't take it. So these laws, these rules, they become our protocols. So we know how to interact with each other. And then some of these protocols allow us to transact with each other, right? Just from a human level, we have ways of communicating with each other. Again, language is a protocol. Right? We have shared experiences and we tie words to those experiences. And now we can actually communicate with each other because we now have codified experiences into words. That's a tree. I climbed the tree. And if you've ever climbed the tree before, you automatically know what that means. And so that's what it's all about. But the thing is, these things tend to unify us. So they get 
centralized, like we have a dictionary, right? So this dictionary is like, hey, here are all the words. And if you agree on this thing called English, then, you know, maybe the thesaurus or the dictionary can be considered somewhat an authoritative thing. Like, that's not a word. You know, you're playing scramble. Hey, that's not a word. <laughs> it's not in a dictionary, right? So we, we, we got to put some constraints here. And that's where I think the centralization starts to come back in. And in, in human terms, that's culture, right? Our culture tends to centralize the way we behave and apply these laws together. Now, when we go to, to systems, very similar. If you go decentralized, you're saying, hey, we need all these independent networks, but what good is a bunch of independent nodes sitting by themselves doing nothing, right? They got to exchange information at some point. And once they start to exchange information, then we start to develop some of these protocols. Well, once you start to figure out things like discovery, where is the other node, like DNS? Now we start to get into a situation where you're going to probably need some root name servers. You're going to need a place where all of these independent actors know where to go. Hey, I know that you're probably running your own DNS server, but I have no idea where it is. Yeah. So we got to have a way to get consensus. We have to agree on at least how to find your name server. So you get this root name server. So I think all decentralized systems tend to always have a centralized rendezvous point or control plane that allows these things to actually be useful. The value of a decentralized system, I think, is going to be things like recovery, right? So one of the nodes has gone away. That node shouldn't take down all the other nodes. So we don't want them to be connected at that level. So even though they may contact something like Kubernetes to figure out what their workload should be, once they get that workload, we want them to then work independently, right? So if the control plane goes away, you already know what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be running these containers with this much memory and ideally allowing traffic to flow. When the control plane comes back, you can check back in, update stats, and get coordination. So I think there's this thing that I, um, you know, I read this book a while ago. It's around, you know, the data center as the computer. And a lot of, you know, when we go from decentralized to centralized, that other term that's get thrown around is the distributed system. And I think the goal of a distributed system is to take a decentralized system and make it look like one computer, hmm. right? My client doesn't know how many nodes are in my cockroach db cluster it just knows that if it hits this endpoint it's going to be able to query and submit data yeah. and it looks like a single computer so i think these things actually go together and there's properties you get from each of these layers that if you know how to use them that's how you build resilient systems very nice well yeah as i mentioned there were some questions uh that were submitted by some of our listeners and i wanted to get through those if you don't mind uh the first one they're, they're all throughout the community the first one is from vmware a guy named neuron at vmware so uh here's neuron hey kelsey i'm neuron Vincen. i'm a product manager for a product called vmware tanzu service mesh and i have a question for you about service mesh now there's been a debate in the industry for years now about the value of service mesh. There's those that advocate for service mesh as an abstraction that can really take and abstract out the infrastructure and allows you to elevate your services and applications uh, above the, the Kubernetes layer. And there's those that say we can implement those kind of uh, connectivity and security logic straight up into Kubernetes. Uh, we see projects like gateway APIs standardize the way we implement Ingress, for example. And we could do that for other things around service mesh like multi-cloud and so on. I have obviously my own opinion around the value of service mesh and how it plays out, but I'm really interested more in your view around service mesh's mainstream solutions. Do you think that it is on the journey to become mainstream? 
like we see at VMware, we see a big uptick in interest on service mesh. Do you think this is something that is going to become uh, mainstream to all Kubernetes implementations or most of them? Um, and if it's not, what do you think is missing to get service mesh across that chasm of becoming a viable part of any Kubernetes implementations? That's a good question. So, you know, when people talk about, I don't need a service mesh, and then I say, you're already using one. Like, what server mesh am I using? I'm like, it's called the <laughs> yeah. internet. It's like, whoa, 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 this is not a service mesh. I'm like, yeah, it is. Think about it. You got service discovery. Got a bunch of root name servers telling you where to go. I got all these routing protocols. And depending on what service I hit, it's going to have different rules about how you log in, authenticate, and what you can and can't do. That That is just how the internet works right now today. Now, the problem with the current implementation of the internet is that you don't get to control what happens at all the other endpoints. That's up to the various operators of those things. And the funny thing is, even though that's how the internet works, when we get inside of our own network, we don't typically do that, right? We assume everyone inside of our personal networks are trusted actors, right? If you're behind the firewall, you can query yeah. anything you want and get anything you want, right? So we're coming from that extreme of doing absolutely nothing. And so when you go from nothing to someone telling you what you're doing is dangerous, you're letting random apps just call. Thing is, what is an application? For most people, it's a collection of libraries that you found on the internet. So now what you're doing is letting random libraries query anything they want in your network. It's like, how do we get hacked? I was like, dude, you installed it. <laughs> you NPM installed the backdoor. What are you talking about? No one got hacked. You don't even need James Bond skills anymore. <laughs> The only thing James Bond needs to do in 2022 is have a popular yeah. package on GitHub and you've compromised everybody. So the attack vector is crazy now. So when we say service mesh, again, put the word to the side. What are we talking about? We're saying that we need to be more explicit about our interactions between these applications because we're not today. So another, I think, higher concept for most people to probably start talking about, which is zero trust. It's not achievable. You can't get to a point where there will be no trust. That's not even possible. But working towards zero trust, which is removing implicit bias from your network. So what does that mean? First thing we need is identity. IP addresses are not necessarily the best identity. Maybe if you're doing one app per VM, but we know for a fact that any other app can run on that VM and assume that identity. So just knowing the IP address, even the tuple IP plus port, doesn't really uniquely identify identity, right? That's a temporary kind of cursor that can move from process to process. So we need something stronger. And so we need this X509 certificate, right? Some people have said, you know what? We can create certificates. And if you think about X509 in the case of like Let's Encrypt and the normal internet, those are pretty broad, right? It's just like a domain that you put on the load balancer that can represent many instances behind it. So it's not granular enough to hang granular policies off of. So we need one more thing. So we need that X509, so something we can sign and say, if you have this, then you are a service. So where do we put the service? And that's where Spiffy comes in, the Spiffy ID, which is commonly used in many service mesh implementations. And Spiffy ID is very simple. It's like Spiffy, S-P-I-F-F-I-E, dot colon colon, domain, kelseyhightower.org, forward slash app. That's my Spiffy ID. If I burn that into the SSL certificate, then what I can do is I'm the holder of the certificate, meaning you got to be careful who you're distributing the certificate to because it's like a driver's license. Whoever holds it, mm. that's who you are. 
especially if they're not paying attention to <laughs> who's on the picture. So now you have this identity in hand as the application. And so now when you talk to another app, its job is to look at that X509 certificate and say, all right, I trust that this certificate was not signed by you, but by some central authority that we all agree that we trust. This is why you can't have zero trust. You got to trust something. Ideally, it's going to be that central authority that's minting the certs. So now I'm presenting the certificate. I'm the receiver. And I grab that spiffy ID and say, okay, you've been signed by authority I trust and you are this app. So the next thing I can do then is go to a RBAC system, role-based access control. And I can say a couple of things like, yo, should this thing be making this request? And I can go look that up into something like Open Policy Agent, OPA for short, OPA. And what I can do with OPA is have a bunch of rules in place that say, hey, I got a request from this identity. It's encrypted because we're doing TLS mutual auth. I'm auditing it because now that I have structure, it's an HTTP request. This is the identity that was used. I can log that event in the system. And then I can go do deep RBAC to see if you're even allowed to make this query. Like all of those pieces are great. Like it gets you closer to having a group of services connected together, participating as a mesh. Now, let's get back to the original question. What's the value of service mesh? We need to do those things. Those things should have never been optional. We should have had structured logging at the request level. We should have had metrics about how many 500s we're getting instead of flying blind like people are today. We should have had deep RBAC and encryption even inside of our networks. We never had any of that stuff. So what's the fastest way to bring those concepts in? Today, everything I described will require you to write custom code for every language and framework that you're using to make sure that you do this stuff at all the proper layers in the application lifecycle, let alone manage SSL certificates and rotate them. That's hard, but we know these are the fundamentals that must occur. So when we say service mesh, we're typically talking about an implementation. Let's talk about Istio. Um, you know, it's part of the cloud native computing thing. And so Istio says, hey, instead of you rewriting all your apps, let us put a proxy in front. Envoy, could be Nginx, but either way, this proxy as a data plane knows how to do all of those things. Everything I just talked about earlier. But the problem is it doesn't have a config, right? Because the, the last thing here is you got to tell these apps what to do. You should only set requests from these three services for these type of routes and also require mutual uh, encryption on both sides. Okay, that's a lot. So how do we tell the apps to do that? So Istio brings a control plane where we can say all of these rules and then those rules sync down to each of these sidecars, depending on what language you're using or framework, gRPC also has native support so you don't have to have a sidecar. So service mesh isn't something that just has Envoy. It's a data plane that has the ability to use identity to enforce policy within a network of other services. That's the service mesh. So when you break it down, we need these things. And last thing I would say here is adoption. So the thing where we get paralyzed is people think they need all of those things immediately. Ideally, you can phase in. Best thing to do is probably start with observability, whether you're using a proxy or a library or a framework, just start logging the requests. Start looking at at least some metrics about successes and failures. Maybe you want to capture some of those payloads to make sure you can actually build really great integration tests. Once you've got some observability in place, that's a nice feature of a service mesh. Maybe the next thing you do is just get MTLS going, right? I know you want to jump to all the rules and fanciness, but that can be complicated. But at least get some encryption by saying, yo, you got to at least have a certificate from the approved CA to talk to anything else in here. 
And then you can migrate to or level up to the granularity that RBAC brings of being very specific about what everything in the network can and can't do. I like it. I like it. Well said. All right. A couple more questions for you. This one comes from Robert in ITQ. Hi, Kelsey. With our customers, we're often seeing Kubernetes being implemented by infrastructure teams to help facilitate their developers who might be asking for a Kubernetes service. But we often see these infrastructure teams struggle with the skill sets required uh, to implement and manage and lifecycle Kubernetes and all the tools that go around it. Do you see companies putting enough emphasis on skilling up around these skill sets? And what could VMware and integration partners like ourselves do to help in this regard? Thank you. Yeah, this is where I think we start to leak stuff too much. We did it with Vagrant back in the day. I remember when Vagrant came out, right? Like this tool that developers would use on their laptop to try to replicate production. Except for you needed like 5,000 VMs were running, Puppet and Chef was configuring them. I mean, your laptop would like literally catch fire trying to reproduce a dev <laughs> environment. It's like, what are you doing? This is not what we meant by virtualization. We didn't mean to turn everybody's laptop <laughs> into a hypervisor just so they can actually write a little node app. That, that wasn't the goal. When we think about Kubernetes, you have to ask what the end game is. If we were running a restaurant, right? The stuff that you buy in a restaurant, like the, the oven, the refrigerator, these are commercial things. They don't even fit in a normal house. These things are made for restaurants. And so restaurants then will buy raw ingredients, ideally not from the local grocery store. They buy these things in bulk, right? Like, a, you know, 10 gallons of mayonnaise. Like, what the hell are you going to do with that at home? <laughs> Even Costco yeah. don't mess with that, right? So you got you to gotta think about these things are meant to run a restaurant. That's the platform. And they got all these raw ingredients. But what do we do? On opening day on the restaurant, we ain't got no menu. We ain't got no board. We ain't got no prices. We just come in and say, hey, Welcome, hungry we got customers. We're going to walk you to the back and teach you our industrial kitchen. You see this knife? This knife can cut your whole hand off. Uh, but we want you to chop your own lettuce if you want a salad. It's like, um, yeah. where's his hand at? It's like, um, he doesn't know how to use the knife and he should learn DevOps. It's like, no. All of this stuff was so you could present an API. Where's the menu? The menu says, here's the type of things we serve. We support vegetarians. You want a steak. We got all that. Here's what's on the menu. Here's how much that stuff costs. Well, if you want to learn how to make it, I mean, we could do that at a different time. But the normal course is you come in, you order something to eat, and the only skills you need to have are like fork knife. <laughs> you know how to do fork knife? Have you ever drunk out of a cup before? You have all the skills you need to eat at this restaurant. Isn't that cool? And so now, no matter what restaurant you go, you can just get work done. But we don't do that for an internal customer. So you're like, yo, we don't do knives here. Uh, so what y'all doing? All right, we got this new thing, right? It's like a rope and a little bit of metal. Don't worry. We're going to show you how to use it, and then you'll be able to eat. It's like, wow, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's food. I promise you this fork and knife should work. And so when I think about what Kubernetes is, as a platform team, fundamentally, you had a roadmap. You got a bunch of VMs, right? So you're talking about VMware. I got a bunch of VMs, a bunch of hypervisors, a bunch of storage. My job is to get the person writing the app to consume those resources in the most efficient way possible. We all seen the kind of, you know, you got your little resource pool. And when that thing get hot, you know, you got to have the meeting. Mm -hmm. Start turning off some VMs, right? We don't have any more space in our cluster. So what does Kubernetes bring? Kubernetes gives you this ability to say, stop over-provisioning. 
I remember when people used to do this, like, man, I got to get a VM as big as I can. Give me a 32 gig VM. Why do you need a 32 gig VM? Because it take you too long to make me a VM. So give me a 32 gig VM so I can put more than one app on it. I never have to come talk to you again. Whereas Kubernetes presents a different API. And so I think the idea is that you always needed tooling to consume the infrastructure. This wasn't a net new Kubernetes problem. You always wanted something where someone could check in the code, build an artifact, and then deploy it using a deployment API. For some people, that's going to be Puppet, Chef, or Ansible. Some people, that's going to be something like Terraform, or it could be Kubernetes. But those are mm. last mile technologies. That shouldn't have disrupted everything. So when I see teams bring in Kubernetes as if that's going to be a way of redoing everything, it doesn't make very much sense. Kubernetes is a downstream API for getting artifacts on top of the resources that you have. The same way VMware works, right? Like here's a VM, VMware will schedule it to the right hypervisor, make sure it's near the right resources so that it runs. Kubernetes is just one level up above that with a slightly different abstraction, but it doesn't mean you need to go teach that to every developer. Last thing I'll say here is it's okay to have a golden path, right? If you do everything this way, the things that are on the menu, it should just work. Put your code here, put a little bit of config there, and we'll turn that into something that runs on our infrastructure. Kubernetes is an implementation detail. But there are scenarios where they're going to have to make their own thing, right? I'm going to bring my own ketchup to the restaurant because I don't know what they're doing with that ketchup. Who makes spicy ketchup anyway? So in those scenarios, you might give certain developers, if they understand the trade-off, the ability to use parts of the Kubernetes API, but that should be more of the exception, not the I rule. I like it. I like it. I'm hungry now, but I like it. All right, third question coming from uh, Tim Davis in the V community. I have a question about the Kubernetes space. So rather than ask you what you think the next big thing in the space is, I'm curious, up to now, what do you think has been the most significant innovation in the space? I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. Yes, I think the most innovation thing in this space was getting people to agree <laughs> on anything, right? Like, like getting the world within just a few years to agree to the OCI imaging format, to agree on a registry spec in which to store these things, to agree on things like open telemetry. There has been so many proprietary metrics collection tools out there. And now we're starting to see this agreement and consensus building. We, we underestimate how hard it is. Like it's, we've seen it. It's much easier to create a brand new project out of disagreement of an existing project. What's hard to do is have everyone stop doing that and say, let's just figure out what we need. What do we actually need? And things like SDX are born, which is the um, language that a Istio control plane uses to talk to a data plane. And now that we have these agreements like XDS protocol, which allows you to distribute configurations that have things like rate limiting information, identity, et cetera, et cetera. Now you have HashiCorp that has implemented that in console independently of Envoy and Istio. This is, this, is, this is like a game changer. I don't ever remember us getting to a point where we agree, because even when cloud came out, right? First of all, we had the hypervisor war, Zen, KVM, we got VMware, you got the cloud, and every cloud provider has a different implementation, have Hyper-V, and no one got agreement on that. And then we just moved on to the next thing. Every cloud provider had a unique, different API for doing everything. And now we're in this new era, this cloud native era that says, wait a minute, maybe we should start making specifications and be okay with multiple implementations. That's the most innovative thing I think we've done in a long time. But I guess the last thing I would probably say, if you want to really talk about um, taking promise theory 
and fulfilling its potential. So those that don't understand what promise theory is, it's this concept that this idea of making an API call and crossing your fingers that it works, right? There's a lot that happens to make an API call actually work, right? There's an app that has to receive it, network that has to transmit it, you know, the code needs to be bug free, go to the database and back again. The fact that that happens so regularly, we all get a little bit spoiled, but that is not a guarantee thing that will always happen. But in a situation where we know that there may be failures and it's serious, like spinning up a database that really needs to be there or some other thing that just needs to be there no matter when it shows up, that's when I think promise theory becomes a big function of that. So config management was the first try at this, which was puppet run. Oh, it failed. <laughs> run it again. Great. We really wasn't doing promise theory completely. We needed to decouple the data from the infrastructure automation. So when we were saying infrastructure is code, I think we were actually mixing two concerns that didn't need to be mixed. Now we think about infrastructure as data. That's that whole Kubernetes API thing, where we now say, let's define what we want as a static data model. You can generate it with any front end. Helm, charts, Terraform, if you will. But at the end of the day, they have to compile down to the same data format. Then you can build pipelines like policy engines. You can't use that field. You can't have that much memory. And we can do that before it gets to the system because we all agree on the schema. And now we can actually give it to these systems. Even when there are no machines in the cluster, the system knows what you want. The minute you add some machines, promise can be held. Then we can start to schedule things. To me, that is just so underappreciated, but it's actually the trick that makes all of this work is that we have this shared upon schema in between the desired state and the thing that makes it happen. Nice. Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, because previously we've gone through different iterations as to how we come about specifications and standardizing things, and you mentioned earlier that you know, around GitHub and this consensus, but community consensus, people vote with, you know, their stars and what they use and those kinds of things. Do you think that we're in a different era now of how software is developed and and sort of wins in a space where it's by the people that go out and actively use it every day versus the people that are trying to sell software into places, whether or not it has merits in that environment or, or otherwise? Well, I think it's kind of like music at this point, right? Because when music became accessible, more people could make the music. And then again, even in the music world, when radio wasn't the only way to consume music, once we got streaming, the ability to click a link and then listen to the music, that means anyone could publish music, not just the people who had a record deal that can get a, a CD manufactured. I mean, some people would say when the CD burner became something that was affordable, the average musician was able to burn their own CDs and distribute them independent of a distribution deal. So these days, I'm not paying for your album when it's not as good as this other album that I just got for free from someone distributing on the internet. So I think you end up creating this level of competition. So I think where we're at now is anyone, and we talked about this earlier, anyone now has the best starting point ever imaginable. You want to build a mobile app? Start with Android or iOS, and you're like 90% there. There are even no-code platforms now that will let you build these common attributes. So given that, where does the uptick come from? So just like music, how are you promoting it? I want to see the live concert, tech conferences, right? When you see your favorite band on stage performing their hits, you're like, wow, I really like this song. I really like that software. 
let me go try it. And just like streaming, all you got to do now is click a link and there you go. You get to go now try the new tool. And if it works, just from going to the concert, you're like telling a friend, yo, I don't know what you're doing, but let me show you what I'm doing. And so now the once that happens, though, once that kind of spreads across the globe, there's no counterforce. You can't buy an ad in the newspaper. Our product is better than the one that everyone is using. It's like, man, we ain't got time for that. Call the sales rep. I'm not calling you yeah. to try no software in 2022. Yep. You got to have a link because that's the new standard. So I think now the whole world is different in terms of there are so many smart people creating amazing things because there are so many more people in the world that have production experience solving these problems. And we went from turning that experience into white papers to turning that experience into software projects hosted on GitHub of all places. So I just think the game is just totally different. And if you want to see widespread adoption, you have to compete with working software. That whole, in six months, we'll be releasing something you've never seen right. before. It's like, man, watch yep. out. Let me know when I can download it. I like it. I like it. All right. Last question uh, submitted by video is from a young guy over at Red Hat, Thomas Chanel. Hi, Kelsey Hightower. My name is Thomas Chanel, and I'm an associate solutions architect with Red Hat. And my question to you is, what advice do you have for young African-American males who are just starting out in tech and want to build their brand? Ooh, that's a deep one. That's a deep question. We got 40 minutes left. <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that's a deep one. So here's why that was a deep one, because, you know, his question specifically is, what advice do I have in, as an African-American male that I happen to be? When I walk into a room, I'm an African-American male first. That's, I, I have to be that first. I can't just be the Google engineer. I can't just be the Kubernetes guy. That's the first thing that most people will see and recognize. And then depending on where I'm at, because even though it's 2022, in tech, it, ain't, it still isn't normal for people that look like me to be in those spaces. So people are confused. I remember I was given a keynote in the early Kubernetes days, and I was talking about you know, how Kubernetes works and um, you know, why it's reliable and how distributed systems are built. And this one guy just asked a question. I don't know if he was being mean, but whatever. He asked this question and was loaded with, who built your demo for you? <laughs> who wrote that code? Do you even know how RAF works? Wow. And I thought about it for a second. Now, here's the thing. There's a perception that I don't belong there. And there's also a perception I don't know how to behave. So I don't get to have the full range of responses that someone else could. All I could do in that moment was dispel whatever myths he came to this conference with and also do the same thing for everyone in the audience and anyone watching the video. So now I have to be very patient with this person and break down how RAF works, how RAF works, how it breaks. Also, what's not defined in the white paper that he probably read on the plane ride to the conference. The thing is, a lot of this stuff, in theory, doesn't work in practice. And I explained to him, I gave him an example of how do you break a RAF cluster. For example, if you have a three-node cluster, and in etcd's implementation, strictly from the white paper, it says nothing about cluster membership at the time. And so some people used to put these in an auto-scaling group. And so three-node cluster works perfectly. One of the nodes dies, new machine comes up, it joins the cluster, does its handshake, the votes happen, and it works. Like, Kelsey, why does it work? It's like, well, because you have a four-node cluster. 
Mm. Still have quorum. And then it happens again four months later. Another node dies. And the way SCD works is since the white paper doesn't specify how members are represented, you have these cluster IDs that are generated the first time a new member comes up with an empty data directory. All that is undefined in the paper. And so the fourth node comes up and now it's registered as node number five. You still have quorum, three out of five. You don't know this because you don't know where to look. It has nothing to do with the white paper. And then eventually it happens one more time. All three are healthy. You checked and everything. Why doesn't it work? Well, now you have three out of six. And according to CAP theorem, the system will stop. It chooses data safety over continuing on like a system like Cassandra or MongoDB. And this person sat his ass right back down because he wasn't ready for someone that looks like me to understand what the hell I was talking about. And so one thing I would say is, given that can happen, we can't be surprised every time it happens. It's an unfortunate burden that we have to carry. And so I decided, and look, this advice isn't for everyone. This is survivor bias. It probably won't work for everyone. But what I decided to do whenever I felt like I was faced with those moments, I would do my very best to make sure that they never left with that myth again. You can make it stop. And so you need to bring your A game. And so I work on my A game. So he talked about building your brand. Well, it's kind of hard when there's a brand that has already been built for you that you didn't create yourself and it's being applied prematurely. And so when that happens, you have to ask yourself, is it fair? No, it isn't fair. But my guess is you're more interested about what you can actually do about it. And I've seen this play out in real time. So I'll just tell a quick story about when I knew that I was going to be okay in this industry. And while investing in these skills were part of the superpowers to give me something that the gatekeepers could not take away. And this is why I love, love open source. It was the one area that I saw earlier in my career where the gatekeepers couldn't keep people like me out. Because no one was asking those kind of questions when I was committing to open source projects. I was just the person who knew how to write code and fix bugs. They told me thank you. When I was early in my tech career, I was doing service calls uh, for like Bell South, right? This is when DSL came out. So we went from 56K modems to high-speed internet. Oh, yeah. And it was a nine-month wait list in Georgia. If you wanted high-speed internet access, you get on the waiting list. Nine months, someone like me would show up. And I remember pulling up in my 86 Jeep Cherokee I bought with my McDonald's salary five years prior. <laughs> and I pull up in the driveway and I got my nice collar shirt on and I got my handbag. And inside of that handbag is one of these butt sets. That's like the telephone that you hook up in the big red oh, thing yeah, I remember in the those. bag. I got my fish tape and I got my crimpers to make uh, ethernet cables. I got the whole nine. And I also have the high speed modems. And at that time you get two choices. You get the cheap ass USB modem. It looked like a little stingray. It's like this turquoise blue color, long tail USB. It's like the ugliest thing in the world. Like, why would you make yeah. a modem look like a Blu-ray? <laughs> but that's what it was. And then the problem was, this is like Windows 96, 98 era. And so if you tried to install a piece of hardware and there was a problem, corrupted operating system. Yeah. So that USB modem, if that driver install failed, uh, I'm apologizing and we'll probably have to buy a new computer or something like that. <laughs> and there was a second choice. The second choice was the one from Alcatel, the black sleek one with the ethernet cable coming out of the back of it that would connect to an ethernet card in your computer, which you don't have. So we didn't go around giving people the ethernet one because it was like three times more expensive, but we only did it in certain situations 
where the USB modem wasn't going to work. Mm. We put an Ethernet card in there and then connect. So it was, a, it was the last option. The guy meets me in his driveway. Now, this is a fantastic house, like one of those driveways where you drive like half a mile before you get to the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Magnificent house. He comes out and he looks at me and he's just like, what are you doing here? Oh, my goodness. And we got this small standoff in this driveway. Now, most of this is like wooded area. If you look at the ground, it's covered with leaves. So not a lot of concrete. And I'm like, listen, it's me or you get the next guy in nine months. And since this is like my area anyway, it's probably going to be me. <laughs> so what do you want to do? And he has this look like, okay. So he lets me into the house. And we're walking down this long corridor. And on the walls, there's like present pictures of him with presents like, I don't know, Jimmy Carter and people like that. This guy was an architect that was designing cities. So famous architect built some stuff. Wow. So we walk back to his computer and, you know, he has this computer, like, you know, nice open office space. And he has this computer, you know, with the big CRT monitor that's about as big as your desk. Oh, yeah. And he had an even bigger printer connected by the old school parallel cable. Oh, yeah. This big ass <laughs> parallel cable sitting next to the desk. And then he has a desktop underneath. And so he's looking at me and, you know, I'm trying to show off now. So I kind of check the operating system and I make a decision that he's getting the Alcatel modem today because I want him to have the best experience. And also, I don't want to look like no idiot yeah. when this USB drivers don't work on this old ass computer that he got on his desktop right here. Mm -hmm. So I open the computer, got my static wrist strap, making sure I'm doing everything right. Put the network card in. He got this new jack in the back and I explained to them Ethernet versus all the other connectors. And when you have Ethernet, though, you ain't got to install no extra drivers. Once the Ethernet card is in, you just double click and off you go. Mm. And I opened up Internet Explorer instead of AOL for the first time. He's like, oh, you're going to open up AOL? It's like, oh, no. You get to explore the Internet. Straight oh, to God, the Internet. Down. And his mind was blown. He was like, wow, there's other stuff than AOL? I was like, oh, you're going to have a field day with this thing. <laughs> and then just to show off one more time, I looked at his printer and was like, yo, you can move it to the other side of the room. It doesn't have to be this close. <laughs> He's like, how would you do that? And I said, I'm going to make you a network cable. So I had a little switch, little $49 Office Depot special. Move the printer to the other side of the room. Create that Ethernet cable. What is it? Green, white, green, blue, white, green, brown, white, brown. One of those mm -hmm. combinations. And clip both ends. And put the little boot on the top, too, oh, so yeah. it'll look nice and clean. Oh, that's, that's extra. I hooked up his... Got to do the extra. Got to put the boots on there. You don't want to have <laughs> the cable all sticking out. And I plugged it up. And then I set up his network printer. So now he can print and see the paper come out from the other side. And then we're sitting there, and he asked me this question. He was like, where did you learn all of this stuff? I was like, I went to Barnes & Noble, and I got a book for $35, A-plus certification. Got my A-plus certification, then I got my network plus certification, and I've been doing this for about a year, and I'm just really good at like operating systems and, and some of this stuff. And then the weird thing is, he was like, man, I don't know what the hell my son is doing. I'm paying for him to go to Georgia Tech, and he can't do any of this. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized that I just watched this person change in real time. Mm. I watched him go from, and he actually said this when we were walking in the house, like, there's no black guy that's ever been in his house before. Like, wow. this, this, is, this is new for him. But I watched him change his perception. So as I'm leaving, he has his perception. It's like, wow, that guy exceeded all expectations that I had for what I was going to get today. This is beyond amazing service. And so that let me know that there is power in my brand. That was my brand. That's who I was. Whatever he thought I was. 
That's who I was. He was whatever I wanted him to see. So I showed him a different version. And so when you ask about building your own brand, you got to find the authentic thing that's sustainable. You don't have to be like everyone else you see out here doing their thing in social media or on conferences. That's just the image we want you to see. Behind the scenes, though, you got to figure out who you are and in the most sustainable way possible. So find the authenticity, show people you know what you're talking about, and the rest will follow. And the people that choose to follow that is sustainable because you're not pretending. Yeah. Well, there, there you have it. Uh, Kubernetes cloud and so much more. Uh, man, great guy, powerful stories. Uh, just, just a really good conversation. Uh, I'm really glad we had the opportunity to chat with Kelsey. Look forward to more in the future. Um, as always, if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast.vmware.com. Uh, you can subscribe to us on your apps of choice by searching Virtually Speaking Podcast. You can catch this and all episodes on vspeakingpodcast.com. But until next time, bye for now. Thank you.